you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, page 713 in our church Bibles. We're going to, Lord willing, finish Mark 7 this, this morning, beginning in verse 24. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyra. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. When Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his finger into the man's ears, then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Epatha, which means be open. At this, the man's ears were open. His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. What a lovely sentence. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you to ask for your help. And we do this not out, of, not out of routine, but out of need, clear need. The need is always great at this moment, God. And we would ask that you would forgive us when we arrive at these occasions when we don't believe that. Please help us then in our study to humbly hear your voice and come to a place of good understanding of how good and compassionate you are to all kinds of people from all kinds of places. That you do do everything well, Lord Jesus Christ. As we pray in your name, amen. Well, one of the many benefits of, of sitting under the expository preaching of the Bible, the verse-by-verse uh, preaching of the Bible, is we discover that not only will the Bible contradict the spirit of our age, but the Bible will also contradict our own spirit, our own convictions, our intuitions about things, our taboos we hold to, which we have assumed are right, but... Or not. And I hope that doesn't surprise you. I hope it doesn't disappoint you to hear that not all of our convictions, not all of our intuitions about things or perceptions on things are right. We are children of our age as well. And as long as we are in this flesh body, not only will we continually need forgiveness from God, we will also need the Word of God, the Bible, to guide us. And confront us with our own taboos, our own perceptions, insights we hold, which we might think are right, uh, think are spiritual, think are biblical, but actually are not. 
And of course, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he was always rubbing up against uh, these religious leaders of his day. They read and studied the same Old Testament that Jesus read and studied. But we've been learning that they added all kinds of additions to the Scripture, which turned out to be subtractions to the Scripture, right? That's verse 9. That'll always happen. Whenever you try to add to the Word, you actually subtract from the Word, which meant to them that Jesus' entire ministry was taboo. It was subversive. He behaved like a rebel. Therefore, he was not sent from God. And when Jesus confronted their traditions and their perceptions about things and taboos, which they had held as dogma sent from heaven, Jesus would inform them either by the scripture or by deeds done. And in those deeds, he would break their taboos. And thus they were learning what God's true intent was. Because their taboos broke God's truth. And in breaking God's truth, this is the worst part, they were spoiling people's understanding of God's love. Let me give you a good example in our story. First story there in verse 24. Jesus is about to speak, teach, and help a Gentile who was a woman living in a Gentile land who didn't have a son but a daughter in need. And of course, the party line of that day, the religious taboo was no true rabbi of God. You know, no rabbi close to God would A, talk to a woman, B, teach a woman, B, help a Gentile, uh, go into a Gentile land, or that kind of thing. And let alone a Gentile woman who didn't have a son, but verse 25, a daughter who was unclean, you know, possessed by an unclean spirit. Right? And of course, one of their taboos was you stay away from unclean people or you'll become unclean yourself. That sounds familiar, right? We think we, if we isolate from bad people, then we won't become bad. But Jesus put that on its head last week. So they would say these are not God's people and holiness does not come by helping them, but actually staying away from them. And Jesus is about to waste power and waste resources on a Gentile who is a woman who isn't part of us. Now, You should not be alarmed at this when I say to you, Jesus helping this woman here might as well be the equivalent in our day of Jesus helping an LGBT woman who is a Muslim, who has a female lover, who is sick, and she begs Jesus for mercy and help, and Jesus uses his power to give her both and heal the woman's lover. Now, did you get that? And can you stand for that? Because for some of us, that might be revolutionary. For others, it might be thought of as unchristian. But this was behavior which was part and parcel of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had a ministry for sinners. And in doing that, he would have to, week by week, month by month, in the years that he lived, break all those religious taboos, cross over those imaginary lines, not for effect, but to confront those taboos which were locking Gentiles out of heaven on account of the religious leaders of the day who their additions put up walls, their mangling of the scripture, no touchy, no talky, no helpy. But Jesus, the Son of God, who we just read does everything well, was in the business of restoring things back to the way they ought to be. And ultimately he would do it at the cross, But here in Mark 7, Jesus gives a preview, a little picture of what God's true intent. 
So let's just walk through the Bible, will you? That we learn that God is a global God. That God, Luke chapter 6, verse 35, He is kind and He is merciful to wicked people. That all men and women, Genesis 1, 26 and 7, are equal before God, made in His image. They have status then. And all people, John 3, 16, all people are loved by God. And Titus tells us, Titus uh, 3, that Titus 2, excuse me, that we are to show true humility towards all people. And God, 1 Timothy 2, 4, wants all people to be saved. Therefore, Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, God shows no favoritism. And he wants all people from all places to repent and believe on Christ. Remember, we said this a while back. There's no more holy places. There are only holy people made holy, declared holy. And yes, God did choose a people, Genesis 12. But the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.16, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he is going to do what the chosen people of God failed to do and bring the light of God to the dark Gentile world. Says Sinclair Ferguson, Jesus had come for the world, not only for the Jews. So that the ultimate distinction, now listen carefully, the only distinction, ultimate will say, distinction of any Christian anywhere is that God accepts those who ask for his mercy in Christ and he rejects those who think they don't need his mercy. That's the ultimate distinction. We've been shown mercy. We accept the fact that we cannot do what is needed that everything Jesus said about us was right, and so we cast ourselves on his mercy and by faith receive that mercy. But he rejects those who think that, you know, God, can you just give me a little bit of help? Just give me a little gospel boost, and then I'll be on my way. That doesn't fly. Three questions then from the text that I hope will answer or make those things clear. Why did Jesus go there? That was a Gentile land. Why did Jesus say that to the woman there? And why did he do that? That whole finger and spinning stuff. Okay. First off then, why did Jesus go there? Well, it might surprise you that apart from a few exceptions, and this is one of them, Jesus spent virtually his entire earthly ministry in Judea and in Galilee. A very small context. He went abroad very rarely. He spent most of his time in one geographical context within the framework of Jewish people. So he didn't go to Alexandria. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Athens. He didn't go to any of the high seats of civilization. And I wonder if you've ever thought that through, that God invades time and God's plan was to keep his son in a backwater region in the Middle East, primarily. What is that like? Well, that, and don't be offended, that's like a small place like here. And God is going to change the world from a small place like here. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? And one of the things it tells me is that when he's outside the region, then I need to pay careful attention. So, okay, there's more that meets the eye. Why did he leave and go into this Gentile area? Well, maybe he was just sick and tired of the Pharisees, right? He needed some fresh air. They were always hounding him all the time. I listened to a song yesterday that said, all you ever do is bring me down. Maybe that was Jesus. All you guys ever do is bring me down. I'm out of here for a little while. Be back, but I'm going to go away. So he leaves Capernaum. He goes 50 miles northwest to Tyra. That's verse 24. 
He goes 20 miles north to Sidon. That's verse 31. He takes a loop even further. He goes 20 miles north to Sidon, walking over hillsides. He would have to cross a river. He would have to ascend the mountains of Lebanon all the way to the east, go east, way past the Lake of Galilee, into territory east of Galilee, down from the north to the southern part of the Sea of Galilee. And there he would enter the Decapolis. That's verse 31b. Not from the east, rather from the north. All Gentile land under Roman jurisdiction, heavy pagan influence, idols everywhere, minimal Jewish influence, a journey of about 160 miles. Those of you who thrive on efficiency, this is not that. This is not Jesus streamlining anything. He does not find the easiest path to do his work. So why did he go there? Well, the context in Mark 7, you see that there, verse 19? Jesus declared all foods clean. And then in verse 21, he declared all hearts dirty. Now, a Jewish person listening to that, the 12 disciples who were learning about that, any new Christian Jew or Gentile who was reading that for the first time in Mark's gospel, you have to understand that would have incredibly far-reaching implications. The whole Jewish religious system was being broken down by what Jesus proclaimed in this one little section of Mark 7, right? All hearts dirty, all food is clean. That was so much of their way of life. You see, some of the food and purity laws in the Old Testament, which if you ever read uh, editorial pages, sometimes people make a hash of them on both sides. They just don't understand. But anyway, the purity laws, they were to teach a lesson to God's people that if you're going to be part of God's people, you had to to make a stand in your life for God. A stand which made clear to everyone who followed that you lived by God's way. You had to show that you were set apart by God for that's what holiness is. And that meant that these Jewish distinguishing characteristics was they would not eat what Gentiles would eat and, and, and they had a special way, a special diet. Also, they had special people who they could spend time with, right? They, they were to stay away from unclean Gentile people and those were the markers, boundaries to say whose side you were on. Now, the problem with that is that was just half of the story. The other half of the story is be a light to the Gentiles. The Pharisees followed religiously the first half of the story. But tragically, they added to the law all these taboos. And as soon as they added all these additions and taboos, they changed the intent of God's law completely. And frankly, they changed the entire storyline of the Old Testament, which was pointing to the need of Messiah, a a Savior who would come to restore things back to the way they were meant to be, not just for God's chosen people, but for all people. All people, Jew and Gentile. Because Israel was never intended to be the, the end of God's savings purpose, but the means to that end. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentile world to the nations. Yet in doing what they did, they became ungodly. They became hypocritical. And they essentially scratched out the places in the Bible which didn't suit them and which negated God's plan for the Gentiles. And you see, that's why Mark says what he says in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. 
Gentile territory. Inference, Jesus just cracked the very foundation of their Jewish religious, religious system of salvation. He just broke it in two, if you would. And no wonder he leaves town. He understands what's at stake here by what he said and what he taught. And so now he's doing what the Jews failed to do. And he leaves town and he goes into Gentile territory. Verse 25, he entered a house. And look at that. You see that? He didn't tweet it to anybody. (laughs) Just like that. I mean, don't tell anybody I'm here. It's so uncommon, right? Now, of course, it's Jesus, so he can't keep his presence a secret. He wants to keep it a secret because it's pretty rational. I just need some time away. I've got a job to do, but I'm going to do it, if you would, in secret. So let's try to answer our first question. Why did he go there? Well, think practically. A 160-mile trip with 12 disciples who need to learn a lot he would have a lot of time to teach them what he just did in Mark chapter 7. But specifically, he's leaving, one, because people need him, two, because that was Israel's mission and he's going to fulfill it. And you get these hints in the epistles that Jesus had come for the world and not for Jews. Ephesians, that God is bringing Jew and Gentile together. And that is the mission of Christ, to bring two separate people together, to make one people God's holy people. That's his mission, to reach all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And that is the mission of everyone who follows him. So that's why Jesus Went. He was doing what Israel had failed to do to declare the goodness of God in a Gentile land. And, and doing that, he purposely exposes all the religious taboos of the people in that day who would seem right to them, which felt right to them, but they were not right and they were locking people out of heaven. And we need to get to the next point. They had their taboos. We have ours. Unless you're faultless, and if you are, then I need you to forgive me. But my guess is you're not, and there's certain people you'll never talk to. There's certain places you'll never go to to get to those people. There's certain lines in your mind, in my mind, that are totally wrong. But we think they're right, and Jesus can help us. Why did he go there? He was told to, so he went. Second, why did he say that? And what I'm saying is in verse 26, right? This is Jesus' response to the women, woman who kept begging Jesus over and over again, falling at his feet. Verse 27, or 26, get, get the demon out of my daughter. Verse 27, this is Jesus' reply. First, let the children eat, eat all they want. Children, Jewish people. Let them have all they want, for it's not right to take the children, Jewish people's bread, and toss it to their dogs. Now, it would be reasonable for someone reading that, whether they knew their Bible or not, to say, well, somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, right? You don't talk to people that way, especially a lady. Very rude. There's been dissertations written on this section explaining that Jesus could not be the sinless son of God because of his behavior here. And again, on the surface, it would seem a little rude, a little out of character, in fact, in Matthew's gospel, you read that Jesus did not answer the lady at first. So she's begging Jesus. He says nothing for a while. 
And the 12, in their usual compassionate way, basically they say, get her out of here, Jesus. Do something. Get her out of here. She's begging. Okay? But you see, sure, that would be shocking if you don't understand the fullness of the story. But let me tell you something that would be more shocking. One, as we said, that Jesus is even talking to a woman. Good rabbis don't do that. He's teaching her something. Good rabbis don't do that. There's another taboo that's going down the drain. She's a Greek, verse 26, born in Syrian Phoenicia, birth, culture, Gentile lady. And of course, she's a woman and good rabbis do not publicly associate with a Gentile woman, right? You don't do that kind of stuff. That's an outrage to the Jews. It'll get you in trouble, right? So Jesus broke the Pence rule. He just broke it. Jesus knows this. He ignores this taboo. In my studies this week, I discovered there was an ultra-strict group of Pharisees at, at the time. They were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And the reason why they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees is that every time they came into contact with a Gentile or, God forbid, a woman, they would immediately cover their eyes, which meant they would bump into all kinds of things and, frankly, fall down all kinds of times, hence the bleeding and the bruising. And the bruises and the bleeding became a source of their pride because it showed externally, at least, how serious they were about their holiness, right? So we're going to do that, and we're just going to run into everything. Why do you do that? Well, Jesus Christ had no time for that kind of stupidity. That is nothing near what he came to do in our lives. This woman, in normal settings, would not get a hearing or any help at all. But this is not a normal setting. This is truth. All religious taboos are being tossed aside here. This is Jesus. And thank God she realizes that Jesus is the only person who could save her and her demonized daughter. This is a salvation story in every way. Okay, so why did Jesus say what he said to her? Okay, that's the main. Why did he say it? Let's piece Matthew's account and Mark's account together. The woman comes begging at the feet of Jesus. She's begging Jesus to drive the unclean spirit from her daughter. He doesn't say a word. She keeps begging. He says nothing. Her begging, Matthew tells us, moves to worshiping and describing her conduct. Matthew records for us what Mark does not. As Jesus says to her, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, you're not one of them. And in a very moving scene, because it's the woman's daughter, and most parents of sound mind would do anything to help their troubled daughter, she drops to her knees and says, Curi Bothio, Master, help me. So her plea was first a sentence, and now it's just a phrase. Master, rescue me. She's asking for mercy. And Jesus' answer to her is actually hopeful because it leaves room for a reply. Do you see it there? Because he said, first, as in something's going to follow, first let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, many of you know that the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. But did you know that in the Greek language, there are two separate words for dogs? One was a grungy dog who lived in the alley, negative connotation, the other was a dog which was domesticated, lived at home. A more positive connotation. Dog unruly, 
the other in the home domesticated. When the Jews called the Gentiles dogs, they always used the depreciating term, back alley, mangy, homeless dogs. Jesus used the term here for household pets. Now, that might soften up things a bit. Maybe not. It's not, you know, I don't want to be called a dog. But anyway, what's happening here is simply Jesus is taking a proverbial material, cultural awareness, putting it in a very pithy way to make his point. In other words, he's using terminology the lady would be familiar with. He knows, she knows all this, right? So at home, sometimes in public, I say to my wife, hey, babe, what's up? I'm not calling her a baby. Hey, mama, what's up? That's more at home. I'm not calling her my mother. I'm just, it's a term of affection. Hey, Nicole, is what I'm saying. It's the same here. My wife knows what I'm saying. This lady knows what I'm saying. On Wednesday nights when we have meals and they're sloppy joes. I don't go around raising my hands going, what's all this stuff about sloppy joe? Why don't we change the meal to messy Mike sandwich instead of sloppy joe sandwich, right? I understand. I'm not offended by it. She knows this. And so Jesus says, it's not right for me to feed the children of God who have not become children of God, right? That is to say, a wide open door right now to the Gentiles is still future, okay? It's still a matter for the future. Now my mission is Israel. So I want you to imagine you're a child and you're about ready to eat breakfast and mom comes with, and dad too, with a bacon and egg platter. And you're at the table. And they take the platter, instead of putting it on the table, they put it on the floor. And Spot gets to eat the bacon and the eggs. How would you feel about that? That's what Jesus is saying. It's proverbial. She understands that. Now what happens next, some commentaries say, you know what, Jesus is testing here. Make sure she's sincere. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know I like her reply. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumb. Right? In other words, Jesus, I know you have a mission to Israel, but I have a daughter at home, and she needs your help. And I'm asking you to make an exception here, Jesus. Jesus, I'm not saying for a second I have a place at your table. I'm a Gentile. I'm not saying for a nanosecond that my background is part of your covenant people in terms of the house of Israel. I am not, but I need your help. I need your mercy. My daughter, Jesus, please, you're the only one who can fix her. And of course, Jesus does. You see, the mission of Jesus, part one, is merging with the mission of his disciples, part two, and getting to the Gentiles, to go to every person in every place and give them the gospel. The exclusivity of the Pharisees, uh, us four, no more, everyone else out the door, that's tossed away. That's silly. That's wrong. And therefore, Jesus says to the woman, you can go home now. When you go home, you're going to find that the demon has left your daughter. Your daughter who was unclean is now going to be clean. And I am going to make it so. Now, we need to get to our final question, but let's just leave this point understanding this. This encounter is an an illustration of what it means to come to Jesus Christ proper. So she doesn't come to Jesus arguing for her rights. She doesn't come demanding something be done. She doesn't come to try to debate Jesus about Jew versus Gentile issue. She doesn't come to Jesus disputing, you know, the mysterious ways of God. If God was this God, how can this happen? She simply comes knowing Jesus is the only one who can help her. 
She says, Lord, help me. And he does. I need to tell you two things. Actually, one's a question. Have you ever said that to Jesus? Jesus, help me. Jesus, have mercy upon me. And then the other question is, have you ever spent a day where you never ask Jesus for mercy in it? Why would you do that? Would you wonder why any person, why any parent wouldn't begin the day every day saying, God, have mercy upon me? Final question, why did he do that? If your Bible's open, you'll see it in verse 33. Jesus gives the man, you see it there, half a wet willy, right? He spits and he... He touches the man's tongue, then he sighs. I asked my wife, I said, can I touch your tongue with my finger, just like Jesus did? She said, that's nice, but you're not touching my tongue. (laughs) What a day that was. (laughs) In the first story, he speaks. The second story, he spits, sighs, sticks finger in the guy's ear. What is that? I mean, if we didn't know better, we would think that Jesus is acting like those faith healers on YouTube and on cable television, right? Where all the waving and all the shenanigans and ho, 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 all that stuff. And I'm like, Jesus, people already doubt the Bible, and now you record this story for us, you know, for all time? (laughs) Why did you do that? Well, let's try to answer that. We're still in Gentile territory. Mark chapter 5, verse 20 tells us that Jesus healed a man who was demon-possessed. And that man, after the healing, went to the Decapolis, went to this region where Jesus was at. So people know that Jesus, uh, know about Jesus. Verse 35, some people unknown by man, but known by God, brought to Jesus this man who couldn't hear and could hardly talk. And they begin begging. And here we are again, the same word. We had a mother begging for her daughter. We had people begging for this man. Verse 32. Good mom, good friend, good Christian. Who are you? Parakaleo, that's the word. Who are you intensely imploring Jesus, please help them? They need salvation. They need help, Jesus. Good mom, good friends, good Christian. That's the work of the gospel. That's the work of the church, a group of unknown people like you and I, pleading with Christ, praying, imploring Christ on behalf of our unsaved friends. You know, when you have a congregation that honestly does that, who prays that way, and you have preaching which coincides with that, I'm pretty sure that God will bring people to faith. But you have to have a praying congregation, you have to have a praying pastor. You have to have praying leaders. You have to have preaching and coinciding with the mission. The man's condition was clear. Couldn't hear, hardly speak. A speech impediment. Verse 33, the first thing Jesus does, he takes the guy away. Three things come to mind here, which I really like. Number one, 
There wasn't another fuss about Jew or Gentile, right? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, write this down for him. It's not right for the dogs to take. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that, right? The deaf and almost muted man essentially is with himself away from the crowds. So it's nice for me to think that this guy could have been the source for Mark as he's writing down the story. Isn't that a nice thought? Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. It was so beautiful. Third thing, Jesus didn't want to make a spectacle of the man. So he moved him away from the crowds. Unlike the faith healers on TV, right? Let's put the lady up here and let's put the guy up here and do all the shenanigans. I like that. This is a unique situation. This is a special needs situation. And so I, Jesus, is, I'm going to make special arrangements to meet his special need. Okay, so now what about the finger in the ear and the spitting and all that? Right? Well, literally, if you think about it, and so many people have said this, this is Jesus speaking in a language where this deaf and almost mute man can understand. This is first century sign language. Jesus is making signs so that the man could understand what's about to happen to him. Sign language number one. Jesus places his finger into the man's ear, verse 33, and then removes his finger as if to say, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. Sign language number two, in the spitting and the touching of the man's tongue. I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth, the spit, right, which has kept you from speaking. Sign language number three, verse 34, looking up to heaven and giving that deep sigh, an incredibly emotional moment, right? It's one of the rare times where we actually know what Jesus is feeling, giving an emotional response, So he did it at Lazarus' tomb. He did it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's doing it here. And each of those occasions, he's facing the terrible impact of sin. What what happened at the fall? Just ruined everything. He looks up to heaven and goes, I should have said this in the first service. I didn't. This week, I was reading the Washington Post and New York Times, and they had beautiful pictures of all the lovely people who died in Florida. And, you know, I just looked at them and everyone was like, why? Everyone. And then the young man who did the horrible act. Why? Sign language. Jesus wants this man to know that it's God alone who's able to do this for you. And I hate sin. Sighs. It's not magic. It's God's grace. Then he says that word, epaphatha. It's a hard word to say, right? Now think, it's a hard word to say, and it's one of those words that if you're going to say it, you're going to have to say it real slowly if you're going to pronounce the word correctly. So Jeffrey Grogan says, the very unpronounceable nature of the word requires a very distinct articulation with the lips, which would make for unmistakable lip reading. Be open, and so he, he gets it with his eyes, and then all of a sudden, he hears it with his ears. Verse 35, ears open, tongue loosened, and what does he say? Do you see it there, verse 35, look down in your Bibles? He says, supercalifragilistic, no, I'm just kidding, but who knows what he said, but he said something, and he said it clearly, and he said it pristinely, and he said it perfectly. 
Why? Well, Jesus does all things well. He was supposed to keep quiet. Right? Why? Well, there's much more to Jesus than his healing people, but he can't stop. Frankly, the people can't. So people found out, verse 37, they keep talking about it, and they say, he does everything well. Will you think with me? We're we're almost done. Think. Jesus is careful with the gentleman's dignity. He's careful to explain what is about to take place by sign language, special need, special situation. He behaves in a unique way. He's emotionally invested in the moment, the, the sigh. He gives glory to God by looking up to heaven. He asks for no money. Because that was common practice in the Gentile land. There'd be magicians, there'd be so-called healers, and as soon as they did what they did, they would hand, or before they did what they did, hand, give me some of that money. Jesus doesn't do that at all. And the man is fully cured. And God is perfectly glorified. Why? Because Jesus does everything well. Don't you hate it when you're tempted to to question the work of Christ in your life? I mean, like, questions are fine, but like, questioning, why, why, why? I hate when I do that. I hate it. Four things and we're done. Number one, blind and deafness and being held under the powers of hell as that young girl was, that's the description of our life without Jesus Christ, right? Blind to the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, deaf to the gospel. We are held, Ephesians 2, under the dark powers of hell. And we can't save ourselves. And so what do we need? Well, that's number two. We need a miracle. The change in the man, the change of the woman, they need a miracle. Just like our conversion. We are helpless until Christ comes. And don't you like it that the only name we have in this story is Jesus? Right? Some people, a woman, a daughter. But the one name we know is the only name that saves. Jesus. And loved ones, God wants all people to know Jesus. So we lose our taboos. We set them aside. And... And we get to them. We get to them. The last thing I read before I preached this morning was Luther's last words before he died for the sake of the gospel. And Luther said it best. He said, we are beggars. God, have mercy on me, the woman God, can you have mercy on my friend? Can't hear, he can't speak. He says, we are beggars. This is true. Let's pray together. Thank you for your attention this morning. Father, we beg you There are hundreds of people represented in this room right now, people that we know, probably thousands, who are outside of Christ, 
They're lost. As it stands right now, they're bound for hell. We beg you to have mercy on them. We beg you, Father, to have mercy on them and to convert them. We beg you. We beg you. We beg you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.